1: Crime Stories with Nancy Grace.
4: Thank you all for your love and support. And I just want to say,
1: I want my baby back in my arms. The desperate cries of a mother. And for this one moment, as painful as it is, let yourself go there. The mother of a six-year-old autistic boy. They need your help and prayers tip line 704-869-1075 there is a ten thousand dollar reward 704-869-1075 of course i'm talking about a beautiful beautiful little boy that goes missing in north carolina in the woods along with his father the fact that he is nonverbal and autistic is making this even more difficult for law enforcement and fbi that have now been called to the scene. In fact, police have gone to the measure of playing out recordings of his mother and father calling out his name, Maddox, Maddox, hoping to lure the boy out of the woods, the very dense woods. The search has been going on. Joining me right now, Crime Stories, Alan Duke. Alan, what happened?
5: This little boy was walking in the park with his dad. It's something that Ian Rich, the father, says they do all the time. They were walking around the lake in this 260-acre park when the boy ran ahead, which is not unusual, but he kept running. And despite the father calling for him, he kept running until he was out of sight. The father then, of course, as you could understand, panicked, and the search began.
1: Alan, listen. I I know it may sound far fetched to a lot of people, but I've taken John, David, and Lucy on hikes, and they do run ahead of me, and they do circle the bin, and I get so nervous and anxious. I start running, and I catch up with them, and I hate to say, don't run, don't have fun, slow down. I hate to be that mom, so I try to just keep up with them and keep them in sight. <laughs> um, the father is eaten up with guilt right now. Take a listen to the dad just this morning with our friends at
6: GMA. I wouldn't know let him got so far away from me. I could see him until at a certain point. He got out of my, my view, and that's whenever I never seen him again. Everybody looks at you as a monster, and I've regretted that since the moment it's happened. It's been hard to sleep. I feel, I feel guilty because I can go into a house, lay down on a bed, and my little boy... Why be out there in the
1: woods? And the FBI has clearly said, stop posting things online that are deterring their investigation, comparing this to the Chris Watts case, the father that we know murdered his wife. They're saying, please stop that. That is only detracting from their search. And I find that very persuasive coming from the FBI. You don't hear that every day from the FBI. Now, I want you to brace yourself. Take a listen to Mommy.
4: I just want to thank each and every person who has reached out to me about Maddox wanting to help find him. I would appreciate it if you were at the park Saturday and saw Maddox. So please, urgently, please call the tip line, please. Continue praying for him because I just want my baby home, please. Whatever you can do. Maddox is my whole world and my reason for living. He's mama's boy. Maddox loves the park. He loves bouncy balls and he loves his teddy bear. His smile is so contagious and his laughter is so precious. If you think that you have seen Maddox, please reach out to police. Thank you all for your love and support. And I just want to say, I want my baby back in my arms.
1: You know, Alan, you're a father and I'm a mother. And hearing that mother, Maddox's mom speaking, is—I I can hardly stand to even hear it because I'm thinking of my own children, if one of them were lost. For those of you just joining us, we're talking about a beautiful six-year-old boy who was nonverbal and autistic, who went running ahead of his dad in a North Carolina park, the Rankin Lake Park, like they always do. And the dad was calling, slow down, slow down, hold on, hold on. The boy kept running. And then when the dad got around the bend, he didn't see the boy and kept looking and looking and looking for him and started panicking. And now, how long has it been, Alan, since Maddox disappeared?
5: It was from this weekend. And the search is huge. 260-acre park. They've expanded it beyond that. By the way, this is what they're really looking for in particular. If you were at that park that day, they saw a professional photographer that they want to talk to. Plus, they saw a jogger that they've not reached If you know who that might be, call the police, and we do have a tip line.
1: Please, please help us find this boy. You heard his mother and father. Tip line 704-869-1075. Go to CrimeOnline.com. See Maddox's picture. Find out more about the case. We're doing everything and anything we can do to bring the boy home. Alan, Thank you for reporting, but I've got to tell you, just hearing the story and thinking about it is literally breaking my heart. For those of you that may know anything, please call the tip line 704-869-1075. And for the rest of us, let's pray that Maddox will soon be back in his mother's arms alive and well a beautiful teen girl, a Mississippi cheerleader, the apple of her parents' eye burned alive. Jessica Chambers, spotted by a motorist, walking, limping down the side of the street, totally and completely burned. Only the soles of her feet were unscathed. In fact, I recall it like it was yesterday yesterday. It was called death by lighter fluid at first because the inside of her mouth and her throat going down into her lungs was burned black, covered with soot like someone had forced lighter fluid down her mouth into her throat and set her on fire, even on the inside. What a horrific way for for someone to die much less a teen girl i'm nancy grace this is crime stories and you better know it i want justice take a listen to this
7: while the murder trial for 19 year old jessica chambers was approaching an end nearly one year ago the confusion for nearly everyone involved was also quickly coming to a boiling point You might remember back in 2014 that Chambers was found burned alive on a back road in Panola County, Mississippi. And Quinton Tellis was charged in her death. Shortly thereafter, nearly three years had passed and Tellis stood trial in Batesville, Mississippi. But by the end of the actual trial, a mistrial had been declared. This after the jury failed to reach a unanimous verdict. You might remember inside the courthouse last October, we told you jurors on the case initially returned to the courtroom on judgment day to announce a verdict. But when asked if all jurors were in agreement, the jury foreman told the judge no. And that's when they were sent back to continue deliberations. About 20 minutes later, the jury came back a second time and said a verdict had been reached. It was initially announced that tell us was found not guilty. But the jurors did not agree on that verdict when individually asked by the judge. Then after the judge sent the jury back two more times to deliberate, they finally returned before the end of the day when they informed the judge that a unanimous decision regarding Quintellus's charges could not be made, resulting in a mistrial.
1: That's my friends at Fox. Scott Mattis joining me right now. Our investigative reporter, Shane Dieter. Shane, let's start at the beginning. Cops were called to the scene after a motorist spots this teen girl limping along the side of the road against all odds. I mean, the reality is she should have been dead in that car because the car was burned to a crisp. What do we know, Shane? Let's go back to the the first moment when first responders arrived.
8: We know that they uh, responded out there. They found jessica uh severely burned barely alive some first responders uh went to render aid there uh, there was testimony in the first trial that she whispered someone's name and that has been the one of the biggest contentions in this trial from the beginning or in this case um the da john champion uh is saying that she whispered Eric, others are saying that she whispered a different name. And uh, Deanna- well, what I
1: don't hold on right there. How to Dr. Jan Gorniak joining me, Fulton County Medical Examiner, Dr. Gorniak? Thank you so much for being with us. The man that we believe is responsible for the murder of Jessica Chambers is a man named Quentin Tellis. How do they know with her throat? burned and covered in soot, her mouth black on the inside. She died. She could hardly speak. She was hardly alive. How do we know she wasn't trying to say, tell us, not Eric? I mean, she couldn't even
9: speak, Dr. Gorniak. You're, you're absolutely right. So um, when someone has that severe of thermal injuries within their airway, breathing, let alone speaking, I can only imagine how difficult that would, that would be. Um, but I have had a case a few years ago where kind of similar, a lady was set on fire and she was able to tell the person who found her and say, uh, say a name. So as unbelievable as it is, I really truly believe that people's will to live um, and to tell their story, um, we try to say as forensic pathologists that we give a voice to the voiceless, but sometimes they tell their stories, unfortunately, before they die. But like you're saying, we don't know what they said. We're only... Um, Speculating, or that's what we heard, but do we really know that's what she said?
1: You know, with me, uh, in addition to Dr. Jan Gorniak, Holton County Medical Examiner's Office, is psychologist out of New York, Lauren Howard, juvenile judge and lawyer, founder of childcrimewatch.com, Ashley Wilcott, renowned death investigator, Joe Scott Morgan, professor of forensics at Jacksonville State University, author of Blood Beneath My Feet. And reporting today on Jessica Chambers is Shane Dietert. You know, Joseph Scott Morgan, I know we all remember when O.J. Simpson, Orenthal James Simpson, got in front of the jury. This was the state's fault, totally. And I don't like throwing a stone at the state. But you never, ever, ever perform a demonstration that you have not practiced. And the main thing you don't do is hand your evidence over to the one person most likely to manipulate it, the defendant. Do you remember Joe Scott Morgan when O.J. Simpson held up the glove and pretended it didn't fit? You
7: remember that? Yeah, absolutely. And then
1: all the focus was off all the blood evidence, the circumstantial evidence, the direct evidence. It was off that, his suicide attempt, the running from police. Who runs from police if they didn't do it? None of that mattered, because if it didn't fit, they wouldn't have quit. And in this case, there is a mountain of evidence, including cell records, that put Tellus with her right up until the time she's killed. And everybody's focused on, did she say Eric or Tellus?
7: Yeah. It's killing me. Redirect, redirect, redirect. And in in this particular case, there is a mountain, a mountain of physical evidence that leads back uh, to this person. Uh, and it's 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 an it should you know a first appearance it shouldn't be a, a too difficult hill for the prosecution to claim I mean to climb but you know you're talking about uh, you're talking about did she or did she not whisper this name Eric and in this state that the doctor had uh, mentioned just a moment ago where this superheated air had traveled into her lungs and her nasal passages how was she even able to effectively communicate who can really say what jessica actually did say
1: well i want you to hear what jessica's father ben chambers tells me do you remember the moment when you heard your daughter was a fire victim
6: oh yes ma'am I'm real i mean it's just like it was yesterday you know it was uh i just didn't want to believe it at first when uh, they called me you know i thought maybe uh you know she was just burnt just a little bit you know uh didn't Uh, couldn't imagine the scale it was, you know. And I asked Barry, "Was she okay?" And you know, and he got real silent. And uh, he said, "No, man, she she's not." And that's when my whole world fell, you know.
1: Where were you, Mr. Chambers, when you learned?
6: We just come home from Memphis. Oh, we had been Christmas shopping or whatever. Uh, that day we hadn't been home maybe ten minutes when when he called. And what did you do? Uh, he uh, told me I, he wouldn't tell me exactly where it was at. He wanted me to stay there at the house, and the sheriff and him come to my house in about five minutes. They was at the house, and uh, he told me, you know, how bad she was burnt, and they was flying her to Memphis. And matter of fact, when we were standing out in the yard, the helicopter come over to pick her up, and so I took off to Memphis. We beat the helicopter to Memphis, which is only about 50-something miles from my house. We beat, we beat the helicopter there, you know, and... Uh... Let
1: me ask you something. I, I, I just went through that. Flying, driving as fast as I could to get to my father before he passed away. What do you remember about that drive to try to get to your daughter?
6: Uh, it was just, you know, I, I was just steady praying the Lord that she'd be okay, you know. Uh, uh, and what, you know, just begging her, you know, to, to, to not take her, you know. Because I just, I just lost my son a year before she got killed, you know, in a car wreck. And, uh, I just, you know, my, my whole world was just shut down. You know, wait on the doctor it seemed like it was eternity, you know. Uh did no no. when doctor, the doctor come out he couldn't do nothing before you know she was too bad
1: you are hearing Ben Chambers speaking to me about discovering his daughter had been a fire victim I'm talking about a teen girl Jessica Chambers a Mississippi cheerleader who was found wandering by the side of the road totally totally burned joining me, Lauren Howard, Dr. Jan Gorniak, Ashley Wilcott, Joe Scott Morgan, and Shane Dietert Ashley Wilcott it's just so much for me to even take in, you know uh, not long ago, and I I call it thank goodness we had insurance, a $700 splinter, Lucy had a splinter in her foot and she absolutely would throw a big fit when I tried to get it out with a needle nothing would do Okay, she's the same way when she, we try to give her a shot. She was screaming her head off the other day, and she got the flu shot. I said, Lucy, it's over. The shot has already happened. And she was still going, ah, nah, nah, nah. Long story short, I had to take her to an EMT because I couldn't stand to put the needle in her toe for 30 seconds to get the splinter out. And, of course, uh, not EMT, emergency, you know, dock in a box. Excuse me, Dr. Jan Gorniak. I'm sure that's extremely offensive to everyone that's slayed for, like, 11 years in medical school. Okay, so, so $700 plus. Thank you, Lord, for insurance. Okay, but I still use a $700 figure to Lucy when I catch her walking around without shoes or socks on. So that's, I had that reaction just to trying to get a splinter out of her darn toe. And this father learns his daughter's flesh. She was burned alive.
10: Ashley? So not only that, first of all, he had people calling him, he says, calling him and saying, they lit her on fire, they lit her on fire. Second of all, you've got first responders who said how horrific it was to see her literally walking towards them, completely burned, hair burned off. Can you even imagine? And then there's even a firefighter who was a first responder who said being a firefighter was his lifetime dream. And after this, he he quit. He said he couldn't do it. It was that Horrible. Now imagine being that child's father. You should never, never lose a 19-year-old child, but especially by means at somebody's hands where they do this to a person.
1: The father, Ben Chambers, describing the desperate, desperate attempt to get to the hospital. Take a listen to him speaking to me on HLN. When you finally you run in the hospital, you're running up and down the halls, you're trying to find her, you get there before the airlift brings her there. And you finally see her. What did you see?
6: Well, I didn't. I didn't get to see her right then. You know, it was uh, about two hours uh, before we uh, got to, to, to go back there. You know, and um, the doctor come out and he told me he said, "Mr. Chambers, she don't want to see your daughter." out here "Yes, I do." He said, "No, she's unrecognizable." You know,
0: he, you know, he,
6: she's unrecognizable. You uh... He said he, he'd never seen somebody it hurt that bad could live as long as she did. He said she had a strong heart. I mean, she had had no veins or nothing where uh, they could even put IVs in or, or nothing. You know,
1: Mr. Chambers, did you get to speak to her before she went to heaven?
6: No, 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 ma'am, I did not.
1: Did you get to see her?
6: Uh, no, no. She, uh, Is, is, is we got ready to go into the, uh, a room or whatever, uh, my sister and, uh, her mother, Lisa, uh, walked in the rooms. And, uh, to see, they was in there maybe about 30 seconds. And, uh, she passed away.
1: You I can know. tell you this, Mr. Chambers. I, I believe with all of my heart that she knew that you were there. You are hearing... Jessica's father, Ben Chambers, describing what he went through, racing like mad to get to the hospital to see his daughter after he learns that she is burned. She's a fire victim. He hears the helicopters overhead. And those are the helicopters airlifting Jessica to the hospital. What monster did this to her? You know, Lauren Howard, I'm picking up on him talking about the helicopter going over him while he's standing in his front yard. Then putting the pieces together to realize that his daughter was in that helicopter being airlifted to try to save her life. She died lauren howard you're the therapist lauren joining us from manhattan lauren why is it that little details like that stick in your mind i remember a lot of small details and they stand out you know as big as a pyramid Uh when i look back on my fiance's murder Uh or my father passing away
11: why is that well when you're in the moment when it's happening there is a a true sense of unreality because it is so unreal. this is, you know, we, we go through life managing expectations. And when things occur that are completely unexpected, we are in an a, a, a out of reality moment. And so when you're in the moment, you don't have the experience. It's, it's uh, your adrenaline is pumping. You're, literally, it's your body is, is drugging you into surviving the moment. So you, the necessity to recall in memory what occurred and to go over every fine detail to see, to try to, you want to feel the feeling that you were not able to feel when it was occurring. I mean, this, this is such an unreality. There's no way anyone could ever anticipate the moment where they are searching for their daughter who's in a helicopter overhead, who someone set on fire. I mean, you can't, possibly prepare for that moment you know lauren howard i gotta
1: interrupt you just a moment because as usual i always ask my guests who are all these experts uh private personal information about myself okay so can i ask you a question you You know very often after we do our program i have to go and get in the car and drive to school and spy on the children i know which one is their window from the street i have to go over there and try i try to be um secretive and cloak and dagger so they don't see mommy staring in with a big set of binoculars I get so nutted up hearing all this I have to go spy on them now you know they, they they wave at me on the way to the playground because they see me sitting there in the parking lot because I just get so overwhelmed hearing all this what is
11: that now you've been – now your sense of reality has been you, – now you're questioning. Now the idea of a person being set on fire is no longer an unreality because you have – you're working on a case and you see that this occurred. Therefore, it has the potential for reality. And so we often say, instead of why me, why not me? Why couldn't the horrible things that I learn about in the course of my work happen to me, to my family, to my children? So your need is to – to be grounded in that this is not occurring in your reality. And, and, you know, this is, I mean, this fireman who stopped working as a fireman as a result of this, this is what happens for anyone in the medical profession, in the news profession, anyone who's experiencing or being exposed to severe trauma. I mean, New Yorkers believe that planes can fly into buildings now. They didn't think that before 9-11. So when they look above them and there's a plane flying into LaGuardia and it's really low... There is that second of, of fear about it because it's no longer a non-reality. So, I mean, it's, you know, I just babysat for my granddaughter this weekend, and I was up all night just going in and looking in her crib to make sure she was breathing. <laughs> you know, I mean, what is that?
1: Window treatments is one of those terms for something necessary but boring. You're blinds. You don't even think about them unless you move or they break. Well, when they're right, everything in your home looks better. But when they're wrong, everything in your home looks tacky. But let's be honest, taking the time and the effort to pick out and buy blinds sounds expensive, boring. And then think of installing them yourself. Who wants to do that? But Blinds.com makes it really easy for you. Not sure what you want or even where to start? With Blinds.com, you get a free online design consultation. Send them pictures of your home. They send back custom recommendations from a professional for what will work with your color scheme, your furniture, and your specific rooms. They even send you free samples to make sure everything looks as good in person as it does online. And every order gets free shipping And this is the best part. If you accidentally mismeasure or pick the wrong color, if you mess it up, Blinds.com will remake your blinds for free. That's unusual. Blinds.com makes it really easy for you. There's no excuse to leave up mangled blinds to make your whole home look cheap and tacky. Don't do it. Go to Blinds.com. And now for a limited time, get 20% off everything at Blinds.com. When you use promo code Nancy, repeat, 20% off everything at Blinds.com if you use the promo code Nancy. That's Blinds.com promo code Nancy for 20% off everything. Faux, wood blinds, cellular shades, roller shades, everything. Blinds.com promo code Nancy. Rules and restrictions do apply.
2: During last year's first trial, nearly a dozen first responders, many emotional, testifying Chambers told them a man named Eric or Derek committed a crime before she died.
12: She had her arms out, was coming towards me, saying, help me, help
2: me, help me. That was a major sticking point for Tellis' defense attorneys, who argued that admission proved authorities had the wrong person on trial.
4: Ms. Chambers did not say Quentin set her on fire. She just did not say that and we cannot ignore that.
2: Pinola County District Attorney John Champion said at trial he believed Tellus suffocated Chambers before setting her car on fire to cover up evidence. Champion also argued phone correspondence put Tellus with Chambers the night of her death. When he's confronted with the physical evidence, the cell phone data,
8: there was no way out for him. None whatsoever.
1: You are hearing our friends at localmemphis.com talking about the first trial of the man accused of burning teen cheerleader Jessica Chambers to death. His name, Quentin Tellis. Quentin us with a very, very long rap sheet now wanted in connection with the murder of another young girl in Louisiana, a graduate student. That's on hold as he faces retrial in the burning death, the so-called lighter fluid murder of this teen girl, Jessica Chambers. The evidence unfolding in a court right now on retrial. It's happening right now that Tellus had been badgering this girl for sex. And in their text messages, it's revealed, she goes, no, 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 over and over and over. Cell phone records place him with her on and off throughout the day leading up to the time of her death. At that time, cell phone records place him going to his home. Surveillance video shows his sister's car going to his home where we know, by his admission, he has a shed where he keeps a gas can full of gas. Then the car leaves his home within two minutes after pulling in and heads in the direction of the fire where Jessica is murdered. The working theory is that after raping her, he strangles her, then decides to destroy the evidence, comes back and finds that she's somewhat still alive. He had just strangled her to unconsciousness, and then he gets rid of the evidence by burning her alive. That's the state's working theory. I want it. And I want it in a nutshell. Shane Dieter, tell me the facts.
8: Nancy, the, this whole thing comes down to the name Eric or Derek and his name being Quentin. You played the clip with his attorney. There were several first responders on the scene who said that she whisp- whispered to them Eric. And that to me is where the whole thing uh, turns is the defense using this as you talked about she was burnt so bad was there really a way for her to you know say something uh, or was she just trying to make noise uh the director of the emergency operations in desoto county daniel cole testified that he wasn't for sure what she said because they were behind a fire truck and the scene was so loud and chaotic but A couple hours after the incident when he wrote his report, he didn't put that in it other than she said, Eric set me on fire.
1: I want to talk about the phone records in this case, the surveillance video, and the fact that Quentin Tellis changes his story over and over and over. Let me go to you, Ashley Wilcott. Describe your understanding of the phone records combined
10: with his changing stories so let's start with his changing stories and that to me is one of the most telling things in this case because he waffled in his statements more than once he did things he gave alibis all of which by the way nancy fell through every one of his alibis for that night Fell through. And so as he changes his stories, and he says, for instance, we had sex in the car and the back seat, uh, passenger seat was all the way back. And he said that happened probably two weeks before she was burned in a car. Well, lo and behold, guess what? The burned car, the seat was reclined in the same position that he described, but said it had happened two weeks before. So there are too many inconsistencies. Now add that to the phone records. There were multiple, multiple texts from him to Jessica, basically wanting to have sex with her. And her response were things that would be interpreted by anyone I know as, no, thank you. And I think one of the responses was, oh, Lord. But if you read all the texts, clearly she was rejecting him or saying no and didn't want to have sex with him. So you add all that together and it does not Passed the smell test. Well, I I don't understand um, why
1: as she's been saying no, 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 no. Suddenly she capitulates that particular evening and ends up dead. It doesn't make sense to me. One thing testimony revealed is that Quentin Tellis changed clothes that evening and put on a brand new set of clothes when he was caught on security camera that evening at Fred's Dollar Store in Batesville about 830 Um, That's when he was buying a cash card from a girlfriend in Louisiana. I wonder if that's the girl they claim he killed. But as it relates to this case, Dr. Jan Gorniak, if you have set somebody on fire with gasoline, that smell would be all on your
9: clothes, would it not? Nancy, you're correct. We will be able to smell an accelerant. You can't actually say it's lighter fluid or gasoline or anything like that, but we we know the smell of gasoline or lighter fluid, but we would just describe it as a smell of a possible accelerant on, on the clothes and then take those clothes and preserve them so um, the fire department or the crime lab can test to see what accelerant was actually. Used. Take
1: a listen to our friend Brad Borders at localmemphis.com. It's Clip 7.
2: I'm, I'm sick. I'm, I'm just sick. My son is a wonderful son. Conflicting emotions and chaos last October after a hung jury and mistrial in the Jessica Chambers murder case. Now, nearly a year later, prosecutors get a second chance to convince a different jury to convict Chambers' accused killer, 29 year old Quentin Tellis, who maintains his innocence. FIRST RESPONDERS FOUND THE 19-YEAR-OLD CHAMBERS BURNT, STAGGERING, AND BARELY ALIVE NEAR HER CHARRED CAR DECEMBER 6, 2014, IN Cortland, MISSISSIPPI, 60 MILES SOUTH OF MEMPHIS. A GRAND JURY INDICTED Tallis IN 2016, 14 MONTHS AFTER THE CRIME.
8: What was this person wearing?
2: When I seen her,
12: she had nothing on but her pants. And... What did you tell me you did? You you got a blanket? I got out and I got a blanket and she had her arms out, and was coming towards me saying, Help me, help me, help me.
8: Nicole, uh, I want you to describe for this jury what type of what did she look like? What was the condition of Jessica Chambers?
12: Her hair was uh her hair was fried out like she would stuck it in the light socket, and uh, she had black all over her face. Her body was severely burned, and just all the way down her body was, was, was very badly burned, and I proceeded to lay her down on the ground. She reached out for my hand, I held on to her hand, and I talked to her, and I uh, asked her her name, and she said, what come out, like I said, her, her mouth, inside her mouth was just charred black, and could not understand her very well at all.
8: Were you able to get a name?
12: When I asked her her name, she said Jessica Chambers, and like I said, she was not recognizable to me. I, I, I know what Jessica Chambers looked like, did not look like Jessica Chambers at the time.
8: Now, Describe her voice for the jury. How was it coming out when you were talking
12: to her? It was very garbled and just dry. I mean, you know, I was I was face to face with her, and she, uh, like I said, uh, you could you could barely understand her, and and she she kept asking for water and. And and I knew in my mind, she didn't need water. I knew that was not the best, you know, not to give her water, held her hand beside her and asked her what happened. And she told me, she said, I was set on fire. Again, was her voice clear? It was not not clear, uh, like I said, You know, some words, come. you were able to tell what they were plainly, but it was not clear if that makes sense. Did you ask her who did this to her? I asked her, I said, who did this to you? She tried to say a name. I could not understand the name.
1: You are hearing testimony from Fire Chief Cole... Haley, testifying at her first trial about what he saw and heard at the scene where Jessica Chambers was found burned alive. The major evidence in this case is going to be cell phone data. Also, they're going to be looking at the medical examiner's report, Dr. Jan Gorniak, with a body burned to the degree Jessica's body was burned, will they be able to get DNA to determine if she were raped?
9: Yes, they, they, there's a possibility they can still get that, that, um, that specimen um, because doing a swab of the mouth actually, you said there could be some lighter fluid or burns to the mouth. Um, we do anal swabs. We can do a vaginal swab. And so as long as she's not burned inside, Um, we should still be able to um, obtain some specimens that could um, lead to um, a sexual assault or even not, or even injuries. We can look at, at injuries Um, once again, that as experts in injury interpretation, sometimes it's difficult with burns, but if they're not, if she's not charred and it's just first or second, you know, possibly third degree burns um, in that area, we'll be able to determine if there's any other lacerations or tears that suggests a sexual assault had occurred.
1: It's our understanding that the arson attack, the burning of Jessica Chambers happened in the vicinity of 7.30 to 8.30. The last phone call or text that Jessica ever made occurred at 6.48. That's about 40 minutes before she's attacked. Now, according to his own statement, Quentin Tellis says they were together up until that point in time, nearly 7 o'clock. So, to Ashley Wilcott, am I supposed to believe? Now, and, and then after that, video surveillance shows him going to his home in his sister's car where he keeps a gas can in a shed. He's only at the home less than two minutes, comes right back out of the driveway and drives off toward her car where it was later found on fire. Okay, we know he keeps gas in a gas can there. Am I supposed to believe, Ashley, that between 6.48 and 7.30, some other person comes and finds her in a, a, an obscure spot in the woods and sets her on fire? Somebody else did it? and then he runs home and changes clothes so he won't smell like gasoline?
10: No, this is what we know in court is circumstantial evidence. And when you put all the evidence together to prove that between that timeline, he had to have been the one to do it, I think the prosecution can successfully argue that. I think it's unreasonable and unrealistic to believe that in that very short time frame you've just discovered that 648 to 730, that no, he, he was doing something else. And All the facts add up in this case so that the circumstantial evidence, I think, will prove that he did this. Back to Shane Deder reporting
1: on the case. What more do we know? What do we know about the Louisiana murder?
8: Nancy, we know that that is a uh, woman that he was having a a relationship with. We know that he uh, took her bank card and that he used her bank card. So... That case has been put on hold until this uh, trial here with uh, Jessica Chambers is settled. He is also in prison for five years in Mississippi on an unrelated burglary charge. So Quentin has been in quite a bit of trouble before.
6: So, well, that's uh, certainly
1: one way to put it because when I put the question to her father, I want you to hear what he tells me. We're talking about Jessica Chambers soaked in fuel like gasoline in her car on a rural road, set on fire and left for dead. She stumbled to a roadside ditch before she was spotted by a motorist who calls 911. The fire that engulfed her ended up being so incredibly hot, it turned her black Kia Rio, completely white. It incinerated her clothes, and it blinded her. Speaking of his record, listen to what her dad, Ben Chambers, tells me on HLM. Can you tell me your reaction when you you learned that a guy had been apprehended? He has been apprehended.
6: You know, it, it... And I'm so glad they called him, you know, it's a bittersweet. But what my whole problem is, why was he even on the street? He should have never been out of jail, you know. The crimes he was committed and the things he done while he was in prison, he should have never been out. He, was, he only got out of prison in October and he killed my daughter in December. But he should have never been on the street. That's my, that's my problem.
1: I don't how understand can, it. I don't eight, understand.
6: How can you get an eight-year sentence and, and serve a year and it, uh, had three years before that? You know, you
1: Mr. Know? Chambers, I don't know why. I don't know why he was out, but I can promise you this: I'm going to stay on this until this trial is done, and God willing, until justice is served. The retrial of Quentin Tell is going on
7: now.
10: You have categorically denied that this happened. Did anything happen?
7: No. I've never sexually assaulted anyone, not in high school, not ever. Uh, I've always treated women with dignity and respect. Uh, listen to the people who've known me best through my whole life. The women who've known me since high school, the 65 who overnight signed a letter from high school saying I always treated them with dignity and respect.
1: What is real? What is not real? One of the most significant roles of a president, believe it or not, is naming Supreme Court justices because those nine judges who are on the bench for life, for life it's not a four-year and an eight-year term, it's for life, will shape the future of our jurisprudence. In other words, what those nine people determine will change our lives forever. You were just hearing the Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, categorically denying he ever sex-assaulted anyone in high school or college or ever. So where did these women come from? Are they telling the truth? How did they mysteriously appear at the time of the Supreme Court proceedings? Well, could it be because they never wanted to speak up before? Or were they conjured up by his political opponents? What is the truth? Let's start with the facts. Joining me, syndicated talk show host Dave Mack. Dave Mack, how did the whole thing start? We heard nothing about these attacks until Kavanaugh was named by Trump as his pick for Supreme Court judge. What do we know what happened then?
13: Well, we know that uh, the first accuser, Christine Ford, actually sent a letter to Diane Feinstein a couple of months ago. And that's where the first the first groundswell began with her accusation, um, leaving this most recent article with Ronan Farrow off to the side for just a minute. These types of accusations, Nancy, are made after, what, 35 years, and I know that some women don't come forward, and I get that. I'm I'm the father of two daughters, but the reality here is nothing is said about this guy until he becomes a Supreme Court nominee, and in Ms. Ford's commentary and the witnesses she says were there, they're all saying, we weren't there. It didn't happen. So the only reason we're even talking about this is because of the media driving this boat and liberals hopping on board to damage a guy who apparently has done nothing wrong.
1: Hold on just a moment, Dave Mack. I don't know what program you think you're on, okay? I don't have an opinion politically on this. I'm not a Republican, and I'm not a Democrat, but what I am is a crime victim that wants the truth, all right? So don't jump up with me telling me that to suggest this was all conjured up, when we don't know. Excuse me, Dave Mack, but have you heard the testimony? Oh, wait. It hasn't started yet.
13: No, but I've read and I've listened to the commentary from those who You've witnesses. read what? Let's be clear. I am not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. And actually, Nancy... Well, it
1: sure sounds like you are. You know what? Just, let's just let's back it up. Let's back it up and talk about what the facts n- we n- are that we know of. Okay? To Wendy Patrick, we know that Trump... Sp- nominates Kavanaugh to sit on the Supreme Court. We know after that, Christine Blasey Ford comes forward. We know that she is a mother, she has a job, she has a life, she's a professor, she's never heard from her before, no trouble, seemingly a happy, normal person, comes forward and says, what? what is her claim, Wendy Patch? Let's just start with that.
14: So she came forward and basically claimed that 36 years ago, she and Kavanaugh were at the same party. She left the main room to walk to the bathroom. Kavanaugh came into the room with another of his friends named Mike Judge. Kavanaugh supposedly pushed her on the bed and was trying to remove her clothing while Mike Judge egged him on. But there were more details than that, Nancy. There was details about turning up music in case she screamed, Kavanaugh putting his hand over her mouth. These are the allegations she made, and she didn't just make them. Apparently, some of this came out during a therapy session years ago, but Kavanaugh's name surfaced recently in connection with the letter she sent to, to Dianne Feinstein, the senator. But, Nancy, that is uh, the where we start an investigation. What Thursday is for is to actually test this history and to allow judge Kavanaugh at least some modicum of due process to be able to respond because he's basically in a position of trying to prove a negative proving he didn't do it. Whereas you and I know in a criminal court, he wouldn't have a burden of proof, but those were the initial allegations that have have really taken us to where we are today to giving both she and judge Kavanaugh an opportunity to address this in front of the Senate. Well,
1: I don't believe her and I don't believe him. Uh, Conversely, I believe her, and I believe him. My mind is totally open on this. Now, I'm coming from a point of view where I'm a crime victim. I've represented sex assault victims in the past. The fact that she her story is rich in detail suggests that it's true. Um, the fact that she's waited all these years to come forward suggests that it's false. However, I know that victims very often never come forward. And they don't say anything until they feel like they have to. Who is Christine Margaret Blasey Ford? Okay. She's born nineteen sixty-six. She's known professionally as Christine Blasi. She is a psychologist and professor of statistics at Palo Alto University. She is published in her field. She specializes in designing statistical models for research projects. She has worked as a research psychologist for Stanford. It goes on and on and on. She's alleging this sex assault occurred in 1982. What more do we know about her? We know that she has a stellar professional life. We also know she lives with her husband that she married in 2002. She's got two sons. Um, we know that she is a registered Democrat. We know that she has protested Trump. What does that mean to me? Does that mean she's telling the truth, or has she been plucked out of obscurity to make this claim? I'm curious about the, the guy that was the alleged witness. Back to you, Dave Mack. Who is Mike, a judge that she says was in the room, and what does he say?
13: Well, he says that uh, he doesn't recall the party and doesn't recall her what her claim is. And again, we are talking about high school now. We're talking about she was 15, the guys were allegedly seventeen, and, and judge says I I don't know what she's talking about.
1: I remember high school perfectly well. Me too, and all its glory and pain of going through high school. What can you tell me, Dave Mack, about a another allegation now surfacing against Kavanaugh?
0: Okay, there was
13: a recent article published with Ronan Farrow's uh, byline, and. It was in The New Yorker. This is an article. i got to point this out, Nancy. Several other publications refused to print because they just couldn't substantiate the claim. Deborah Ramirez is claiming sexual misconduct on the part of Kavanaugh, claiming it happened to her while she was at Yale University in a dormitory party 83, 84 year in that time frame. And she's claiming um, that during a drinking game that Kavanaugh exposed himself and got even a little bit further than that but she did name eyewitnesses, people that were allegedly there. And the four people that she named have all already said didn't happen, weren't there, never even heard about this. So again, 35 years ago, there's a claim, and the four people that she names all say it didn't happen. We we weren't there. I don't know what she's talking about.
1: Okay. I don't really know how we would prove a case like this if it went to a jury trial. With me, Karen Smith, a forensics expert, joining me out of Florida. She and I have conducted many, many forensic experiments together. Karen, see, I look at everything from a world of black and white. Can I bring it into evidence? What What can you do with these claims forensically?
10: Nothing.
11: There is no forensics. And that's the problem with these cases. They're he said, she said. And Nancy, You know, this has become so politicized and so spun up on both sides. And in my mind, there is only one way to, you know, even if we can get to the bottom of this, it's through the FBI, allow them to do a full, fair and unbiased investigation into all of these claims, interview everyone, get to the bottom of what they know, whether they were there or not, get their testimony, get their statements And then go from there. It is beyond me why we have not allowed the FBI to interview these people and find out the truth as far as we can after so many years have passed. It's only fair to everybody involved, and it's only fair to the American public.
1: Karen Stark joining me, a psychologist joining me out of New York. Karen, very often victims don't ever come forward i mean everybody on this panel hasn't something ever happened to you you've never told anybody okay because it has to me and i don't see any reason i should well karen why my question is different why are we rushing forward why can't we find out the truth through the fbi before we go forward with anything well what what's the problem with that
15: Well, I think part of why it's being rushed forward, Nancy, is because he's been, you know, put up as somebody to be, he's going to be in this very, very important position, and we are living in a time when everything is so polarized, and it's Democrat or Republican, so people come on board and forget that this is an issue that is very important, I'm, I'm reminded, and I know I'm not the only one to keep reading about it now, of Anita Hill, where she was condemned for coming forward after so many years. Yet, if you know, you know I know as a psychologist, that that is absolutely the truth. That not that her story is true. I can't know that. But I do know that people do not speak up. It's shameful. It's embarrassing. And... I would suspect that there was no reason for her to share this story, except in therapy, as she did, or if she's concerned that someone's going to be in a very important position making laws about our country and then gets concerned that that person is not the right person to be in that position. Well,
1: wait. Anita Hill, who is now a feminist icon, remember, she came forward about Clarence Thomas, the current Supreme Court Justice from Pinpoint, Georgia, as I recall, what stands out in my mind about that is his affinity with the porn actor Long Dong Silver. You know, I don't want to make the same mistake twice. Why can't we just put the brakes on it and find out the truth? Nancy Grace, Crime Stories, signing off. Goodbye, friend.